So there's just two weeks left until the Vasa begins. It's a time to finish up personal business. Things such as sewing robes, any kind of personal projects. Get one's kuti cleaned and tidy. Get the monastery tidy so that the vasa can be a time to dedicate our energy to, particularly to meditation. It's a retreat time where we put a lot of effort into sitting, walking meditation, studying the Vinaya, learning chanting, contemplating the teachings in a very continuous way. It's a time where we don't travel very much, we don't engage in too many projects, simplify our life. It's a time where we might determine to minimize contact with our family and friends, tell them that we're on retreat so that we can maximize our effort and our focus on the practice of samatha, gamatana, vipassana, gamatana. We can use retreat times like that. We can tell people that we won't be contacting them for a period of time unless there's an emergency. And I think most people understand that. As a Buddhist monk, if you can't go on retreat and have some time where you set aside your contacts with the rest of your family and friend network, then who else can do it? And this is what Buddhist monks do. We can use these last few weeks just to prepare for our retreat materially but mentally as well. Just settle into some good routines and really make it clear the value of practicing meditation in a peaceful environment in the forest. Very few people in the world have this opportunity. There's many people who would wish to live like this, but maybe can't for one reason or another. We're the fortunate ones. We've got our opportunity now. We're well supported and we have a quiet place. <coughs> we have the teachings of the Buddha and Lumpur Cha to guide us. Having just come back from the 
annual meeting at Wobbapong. It's always a reminder of the value of the teachings and how far the Sangha has grown in terms of numbers. It's a very unusual phenomenon when a teacher passes away. Now for 25 years, Lampucha has been dead and now the Sangha and the number of monasteries in his Sangha is bigger than ever. It's because of the quality of his teachings, practical application of Dhamma Vinaya training monks and those monks he trained going on to train others. It's a, you might say a system that's been proven to be effective, valuable to people interested to really understand the Buddhist teachings more deeply. And now it's grown and spread all around Thailand, all around the world, and no doubt will continue to grow. And we're benefiting from some of the past experience of previous generations who've practiced, set up monasteries. You might say some things are easier, smoother than in the early days of Wat Bapong when Ajahn Chah was teaching. And here in Australia, you might say now, Buddhism has been around, it's more well known for many years now. Yesterday we met the Sangharaja of Thailand, the Supreme Patriarch, who in 1973 and 74, he was living in Sydney, the first generation of Dhammaduta, so ambassador monks sent from Thailand. So he has a certain personal connection with Australia. He was saying, talking about some of the difficulties of practicing as a Buddhist monk in the early 70s where everybody assumed you were a Hare Krishna or you'd walk down the street and then shout names at you. Going Bindabhata, you even got spat at. Some people offered him beer. You might say a friendly gesture, but an inappropriate offering. And things have really changed now in Australia. Buddhism is much more widely known accepted. Buddhist monks are no longer called Hare Krishnas. They tend to be known as Buddhist monks. And generally people are friendly, welcoming, and understand a lot more of what the Buddha taught. And there's more monasteries, Buddhist centers everywhere in Australia. So partly we're indebted to monks like the Sangharaja when he first came, who you might say, laid a foundation down to the present day. We're benefiting from that, just as we're benefiting from Lumpur Chah's teachings. Even today, waiting for a lift at the airport, we were waking, waiting outside, and one Australian lady just walked past and put her hands up in Anjali, just 
as if someone in Asia, in Thailand or Sri Lanka might do. That's significant, it's a sign of how much interest, respect there is for Buddhism, Buddhist monastics in Australia and other parts of the world. So that's our good fortune that we have a good teacher, a good way of training, a monastery, a way of support and even a society that is open and receptive to us, to allow us to live here. Something to be grateful for. And we can use that to boost our practice, our efforts in the practice. As most of the laity look to us to be as if leaders in the Dhamma, Vinaya. Not necessarily just as teachers in terms of giving talks and guidance, but just in our example, the way we live. Restrained in the Vinaya, practicing simplicity, modesty, living in the forest, and turning away from the world, you know, the excesses of the world, the excesses of uh, selfishness, violence, sensuality, things that people often sense are a cause of suffering and a reflection of their suffering, but are often feel helpless, don't know how to deal with and how what what more they can do in their lives. Because it's so much a part of our society now. Monks can provide some kind of glimmer of light, a reminder of the spiritual qualities that probably many people aspire to, even if they find it difficult to practice. We can remind them of the spiritual side of life and provide some kind of example of sila, restraint, harmlessness. And then putting effort into our practice, actually developing some inner qualities of mindfulness, renunciation. Mindfulness uh, leads on to samadhi. Renunciation supports samadhi, the arising of states of calm, stillness, firmness of mind. So the mind is trained to turn away from the, the lure of sensuality. You know, the endless, just looking for more objects, more pleasure, more experiences to indulge in. As monks, as part of our practice, is just to turn away from that habit. Train the mind in mindfulness, one-pointedness, using meditation objects and the, and the lifestyle and the training. Learn to really bring the mind to stillness based on letting go, renunciation. And patience, you're learning to be patient with the mind and learning to tame it. Jan Chah used to say we're practicing meditation. It's like you're somebody who's stuck in a cage with a, a tiger and that tiger's running wild. The mind is like a wild tiger running around, running amok. It's the mind, the untrained mind that follows its moods and desires 
whatever happens, just always reacting with attraction and aversion, delight and aversion. We're learning to train that mind, the wild tiger, through mindfulness and then insight. But using a lot of patience and endurance to deal with desires and moods that come up, seeing the process by which desire, attachment leads to suffering. And that's where we get our strength of mind and our discipline and determination to actually let go of desire. <coughs> seeing it and then letting go of it rather than following it all the time. So in the Vasa it's a time to really do that. You can experiment with sleeping. Say like on the one prat we keep Nesajik, stay up all night. Just use sitting or walking or standing posture but not lying down. You really get to know how much sleep you need for the practice. Learning whether you can cut back a little bit. Learning how to contemplate food, how much food do we need. Something Ajahn Chah often encourages learning to count the mouthfuls of food you eat. You only eat one meal a day in the bowl. It's very easy to become very clear on how many mouthfuls of food you need just to keep healthy, whatever number that may be. And then using that as a way of bringing very constant mindfulness to the process of eating. You're noticing how when you're taking food or receiving food, how easily the mind is stirred up, but it's so automatic, so quick, the way desire jumps into the mind that we often don't notice. So being restrained in what we take and then restrained as we eat, counting the number of mouthfuls, bringing the mind back to the present moment as we eat, contemplating, chewing, tasting, swallowing. You see the actual pleasure of eating is literally just a few seconds, a few moments of taste buds encountering the taste of a food stuff, an item of food or drink, and then it's gone. But all the desire that forms around that for just a few moments of pleasure, a lot of mental proliferation. You see when there's a lot of desire physically it manifests with saliva and Sometimes you can even shake with desire, with anticipation and excitement, just for food. So we use the retreat time to really contemplate that. Bring the mind back to the present moment, steadiness, focus, maybe counting the mouthfuls right through to the end of that meal. And see if we can maintain the steadiness, the stillness of mind that we might have had at the beginning of the meal, see if it's still there at the end of the meal. And practicing both mindfulness, paying attention, patience, you might say an aloofness, You're not easily giving in to desire. Desire arises, but not giving in to it. 
not letting it form into more attachment. But trying to maintain enough presence of mind and patience and alertness to contemplate and see desire as something that is impermanent, not self. It arises, it ceases. As we do that, the mind becomes more familiar with the process of contemplating desire, its arising, its ceasing, the nature of it, how it leads to suffering, how when we abandon it, the mind becomes free. You, you abandon different desires of aversion and delighting in phenomena and the mind becomes free and gives rise to pity and sukha. When we do put things down, we get a sense of freedom and inner contentment based on just knowing the way things are, but not caught into desire, not following it. So much more satisfying, a higher kind of happiness and peace of mind. That may also be impermanent, but it's leading us, guiding us in the right way. Someone was telling me yesterday before we left Thailand how they spend all their life smoking cigarettes and everyone had told them how unhealthy it was and bad for them and they knew that but they just indulged that pleasure, that desire. But having taken up meditation and chanting the last couple of years, they said they just became so much more aware of how the mind was following desire. And been starting to become really weary of that and obviously weary of the effects of tobacco on the body. So they just decided just to drop it. And they did. And they dropped it now for an, uh, the last year. Everybody around them was astounded, didn't think they could do it. They just dropped it like that. And they said, having, even though they've depended on cigarettes a whole lifetime, they say, it feels so free, so happy now. And much of practice is like that, in developing enough awareness to see different desires and attachments, to see the suffering of them, and have that confidence in the path of letting go, to just do it, drop it. If we're doing more hours of meditation than normal, if we're on retreat, then there's always the difficulty of, say, boredom, restlessness, because we're with our mind more than usual, with less distraction, less to do. Dukkha waiting affects us more. We tend to move around because of Dukkha waiting and notice the waiting more. So you notice how on retreat, maybe the weather affect, it seems to affect you more. When it's cold, you seem to notice the cold, the unpleasant nature of cold weather. Or sitting, you notice pains in the body, feelings, sensations in the body that 
when we're thinking a lot we don't notice as you become more mindful it's almost like it's revealing more dukkha to you it seems like harder work so we have to keep relying on patience and then just bringing up effort and contemplate don't always give in to desire based around vetana have that sense of trying to win out over the kilesas in your own mind in the way of the world in the past is often we're trying to win out over other people you know, arguing over what we know and what we think is right and best arguing with other people trying to look better than others have more things than others and so on now we're just turning that inwards and just using that energy to defeat kilesa can you not give in to a kilesa not give in to anger at your will not give in to a certain sense desire that you know is just accumulating more attachment more suffering you see that's the real victory is learning to have a victory over your own mind becoming more aware of how the mind suffers when it does give in to different emotional states and moods not to blame oneself we have to be able to forgive ourselves and accept kilesas come up all the time but to start seeing them as a challenge can you bring the mind to peace when you have negativity when you have worry when you have fear and anxiety when you have greed or lust can you bring the mind to peace using wisdom also patience mindfulness effort wisdom bringing the dhamma into help deal with kilesa when there's lust really become familiar with contemplating the body the human body the 32 parts of the body going through them back and forth becoming more and more familiar with the body as a object of wise reflection rather than just likes and dislikes developing this aloofness this peace of mind that's just turned away and as if slipping away from desire so desire is no longer something that's personal it's just a mental state that arises passes can be let go of becoming more familiar with detachment equanimity separation of mind from desire the more we do this the more the mind becomes established in the correct way of viewing things using the dhamma seeing things as impermanent what's impermanent is suffering unsatisfactory it's not something to pursue for lasting happiness what's impermanent suffering it's not self there's no lasting self person a being in that in that feeling or emotion in the body in the mental state in the thought what's not yours you can let go of makes it easier
we went to see Lumpur Blian the other day, come out of the hospital after his operation. He's just saying he doesn't suffer with the fact that they just cut half a meter of intestine out because he spent his whole entire monk's life contemplating the body to see it as not self. It's unattractive as not self, not something to be grasped at. Something that's made up of four elements. Something that you just borrow like a vehicle for a lifetime and eventually let go of. It's just that it's become so established in his way of thinking, way of relating to the physical world and to his body that you can just accept peacefully that's the way it is when you get ill operations take place the body gets weaker just accept that that's just the way it is so there's no mental suffering with that and this is the result of a lifetime of practice and we can't be sure how we'll die from illness or injury or just old age but we can be sure if we keep contemplating the body and see it as not self, not a being, a person, then the mind can be at peace with whatever happens to the body. If you can't control the onset of illness or aging, you just have to let it be, but let the mind be at peace with it. Not to worry, not to fear, not to doubt, not to cling or long for, say, for youth or for the time when the body was better, healthier, stronger, just to accept that's the way it is. Human bodies get old. Well, we're not old and really use this body. You have to put effort into that which is difficult to do. It's difficult to meditate, to motivate yourself to sit, to walk, to bring up mindfulness. It's easy to follow the way of the sensual world the way of the senses just seeking more temporary contentment and happiness with different sense objects, different activity, activities, different moods. But try and do what's difficult to do, put effort into making the mind strong, clear, so that we can really understand the truth and know the way things are. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.